Well, good morning. It's good to uh, be with you, though, in this uh, new way this morning as we finish January of 2021. And our family has had many a morning uh, worshiping in the living room at home. So I know I'm speaking to some of you who are uh, watching alone, some of you who are watching with a husband or wife and your kids are in the playroom or some other way occupied. Some of you have managed to get all the kids on the sofa together, though probably still in their pajamas. And uh, others of you have, have got your act together this morning through some uh, marvelous act of, of God's grace. Uh, I know that some of you are watching from far away, at least one couple watching from a boat in Florida. So technology can be uh, an amazing thing at this time. Uh, I wanted to just make a brief mention. Some of you all have asked what I do with the C.S. Lewis Institute. And in a, a, a kind of elevator pitch, um, the C.S. Lewis Institute uh, has existed since 1976 to help uh, just build and grow disciples in every aspect of their lives and walk with the Christ. With Christ, um, Our role model is C.S. Lewis, who was not a missionary, a minister, or a theologian. He was a layman. He had a job before he was converted as a tutor at Oxford. And after his conversion, he never changed his job. He kept the same job as a, as a tutor at Oxford. And then some decades later, uh, finished his career at, at Cambridge. But he took the life that he had and in a marvelous and exemplary way offered it wholeheartedly to the Lord. And that's the goal of the C.S. Lewis Institute is to, uh, through events, but especially through our one-year fellows program, to work with men and women ages 24 up into their 70s and 80s um, who want to take the life that they have, whether they're retired, whether they're a full-time practicing physician or nurse or educator or attorney or, or full-time mother. We've had all of those and have all of those in our current cohort of fellows. Um, your own Tom Crocker, a new member here, is one of our fellows uh, this year to be able to take their life and offer it wholeheartedly to the Lord through a, through a one-year fellows program. So that's all I'll say about it. If you're interested in learning more, just go to our website, cslewisinstitute.org, and there you could click on the drop-down bar and go to the Greenville page and, and see our video and, and find my contact information. If you're interested in learning more, I'd love to receive an email from you and um, we could go from there. So that's what we do. Um, I was looking at your website recently, and the About tab takes one down to, I think, six core values. And I don't know how new or how old, how deeply rooted or, or still seed on the surface of the ground these core values are. But one of them, I think the third, is the value of we are prayerfully dependent. And it reads this. Um, we, can rec we recognize that we can do nothing without God. God has called us to pray, recognizing our absolute dependence on him. We may be confident that God hears our prayers and answers in a way, in the way, that most glorifies him. What a great aspiration. And as someone who was born and baptized a Presbyterian and is familiar with many Presbyterian churches, um, prayerful dependence is kind of rare in our circles. Um, as, as Presbyterians, we, we tend to be well-educated, so when we face our problem, our first thought is to put our minds to it. Um, compared to other denominations and demographics in American Christianity, we're, we're, we're fairly well-to-do, so our second thought is to put our wallets to it. So we, we tend to come to prayer uh, often as a last resort rather than a first uh, initial response. And I've experienced that in my own life and in previous churches that I have served. And when you do that, coming to prayer as a last resort, you will find the Lord's help because he's gracious and kind and merciful and he waits for us. 
But by the time you get there, you often have accumulated a stack of pain, of prayerlessness, uh, as is captured in that wonderful hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Do you know the line? Uh, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. And this is the line that just pricks my soul so often. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. At my previous church, we would do an annual session retreat, and we would remind ourselves every year as a session, do we expect to feel the pain of prayerlessness? Because those are really the options for a Christian, the pain of prayerlessness or the joy and confidence and peace of prayerfulness. Now, there are several reasons that prayer is not our first instinct. In addition to trusting our own minds, our own wallets, or just letting time do its thing. Sometimes our soul is just too much in a knot to pray. We don't know where to begin. We might feel simply like we don't want to pray. And if that is where you find yourself, either today or you found yourself there for some season of life, the good news of the scriptures is that God has supplied a whole genre of psalms, particularly for people who don't feel like praying, and who don't know where to start. It's the Psalms of Lament. And out of the 150 Psalms, about 68 to 70 of them are, are Psalms of Lament. Psalms that in general don't begin with praise, but, but begin with protest. Psalms that don't begin with adoration, but begin with apprehension. And that is where Psalm 13 uh, puts us, in a, in a characteristic psalm of lament that's God's uh, meeting us where we are when we don't feel like praying or find ourselves in a difficult place where we just don't know how to start. This song begins, the psalm begins with four, a fourfold repeat of the question, how long? Uh, Charles Spurgeon calls it the howling psalm. The howl of the soul crying out to God, how long in a time of great distress or discouragement. So, with that background, let's turn to this psalm of lament, a psalm where God meets us in prayer right where we are and then leads us to a better place. Let's hear God's word. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes. Lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let's go to him together now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the Psalms you give us your inspired word 
to become our words of response to you and to guide us in prayer when sometimes we don't know how to pray. Lord, we pray that through your word you would minister to each man, woman, and child who is here or watching this morning. Through the powerful working of your blessed Holy Spirit in our hearts, bringing the light of Christ and the hope of the gospel into our darkness and despondency, that we might praise you and live for you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are five parts to praying in the manner that David prays here in Psalm 13. To praying when you don't know how to pray or you don't feel like praying or you just don't even know where to start. And the first is this. It's your starting point. Say how you feel. In prayer, begin by saying how you feel. How long, O oh Lord, begins David. He, he begins right there in the, the difficult, despondent place of his soul, speaking out loud what's going on in his mind and in his heart. Uh, David's like all of us. He's like you and he's like me. All of us go through our day with a running inner monologue, with a transcript that we would dread if anyone else read it. And it's an inner monologue that might be filled with anger, frustration, uh, discouragement, anxiety, fretting, false pride. Lots of things go into our inner monologues. And David models for us something that, that our Lord wants us to do in prayer, which is to take our inner monologue, and if it, if it were a car, to recognize that it has a sunroof or a uh, an opening and to push the button and pull back the top and take what we've been speaking that's been jammed up in our own minds and begin to lift it up to the Lord so that we go from ruminating in an inner monologue that hounds us all day to praying and lifting our hearts up to the Lord. This is what uh, Peter commends in 1 Peter 5, 7 when he says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We don't know the exact situation in David's life that's behind Psalm 13. Sometimes we do know what was the occasion of a psalm he wrote. But we know he's in a very difficult spot. And we know he's come to believe that the Lord cares for him enough that he can take what he is feeling and say it directly to the Lord. Will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face from me? Will I have sorrow in my heart all the day? And will my enemies be exalted over me? The same is true for us to take whatever is going on in our hearts, in our minds, that's, that in our thought is keeping us from prayer, that's causing us to, to obsess and be stuck somewhere in some place emotionally or intellectually or otherwise, and to trust that God wants us to take that inner monologue and open it up and say it to him, Lord, this morning, I don't feel like praying. I feel mad. I feel really anxious about what's on my schedule later today. I feel nervous that I'm on the verge of making the wrong decision and ending really poorly. I haven't felt your presence in a long time. Beginning right there with what you're honestly thinking and feeling and say how you feel to the Lord. That's how Psalm 13 and other Psalms of Lament teach us to begin in prayer when we don't know how to begin. But secondly, after you say how you feel and you've kind of gotten it all out, then secondly, say who God is. 
See, David starts with where he really is, but he doesn't, he doesn't stay there. At the end of the day, prayer isn't navel-gazing. It's ultimately God-gazing. I love the way that A.W. Tozer defines faith. He says that faith is the gaze of the soul upon a saving God. And so David takes time to say who God is. We see this in verse 3. He says, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. O Lord, that's the, the Old Testament name for God as the covenantal Lord who, who makes promises and keeps them all. It emphasizes especially his transcendence, that he is the great I am, that he is the one above space and time and history and thus in no way subject to what's happening down here below, but in control. When I make a promise to my son or my daughter who say, Dad, when you get home from work on Monday, will you take me to Kilwins for ice cream? Yes, I'd be glad to. Promise? I can say I promise, but what if my car breaks down on the way home? What if they get sick that day? There are so many things that I am subject to that make my promises contingent. But the Lord, all capital letters in, in your Old Testaments, signals Yahweh, the one who is above space and time, the transcendent Lord, who can make and keep a promise because nothing that happens here below affects him in terms of thwarting his purposes. Now as we go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we find that when the Son of God is born and revealed among us, and as he lives and walks and speaks and teaches and prays, we hear him addressing God with a new emphasis. In the Old Testament, God is very rarely addressed as Father. But then in the preaching and teaching and prayers of Jesus Christ, he is overwhelmingly addressed as Father. What has happened is that in the Old Testament, the emphasis is on the Lord as the transcendent God, establishing that clear distinction between God as the Creator and everything else as that which is created. And as we come to the New Testament then with the revelation of the Son, we learn more about who that Creator and ruler, transcendent God is in and of himself. And that in his eternal life he is triune. The Father begetting eternally the Son. From them proceed the bond of love of the Holy Spirit. It's a community of life and love and light within the one God. That's who he has been from all eternity and ever will be. And so as we read in the Psalms and we see the psalmist addressing the Lord, we have an even greater privilege in the New Testament if we trust in Christ, if we're united to the Son, of being able in the Son to also go kind of one step further to the very heart of God and to call him Father and to see ourselves in a way that the old covenant people could only see dimly, but we now see in its full light to know ourselves to be in this moment children of our Heavenly Father. So saying who God is, David also calls him my God. And Luther says these, these, the personal pronouns are the heart of the gospel. Not just knowing the Lord, but knowing him as my Lord. Not just confessing the Father, but knowing him as my Father. Not just confessing that I have a Savior, but that he is my Savior. Luther said, this is the heart of the gospel. Can you say that he is my Savior, my Lord, my God, my Father, my Jesus, my gift of the Holy Spirit? Taking time to get there and saying who God is. If you are in Christ, he is your Father as well. 
So you begin by opening up your inner monologue and saying how you feel, but you don't stay there. Once you get all that out, then you take time to say who God is. Creator, ruler, provider, savior, father of our Lord Jesus Christ and my father through him. Third then, as we follow along, you say what you most need. You say what you most need. You know, we should not be embarrassed to ask God for things. Oftentimes there's a reticence, a hesitancy to bring our needs before God, but Jesus taught us to do that. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened. Jesus teaches on prayer a lot about asking. And indeed, we can say that with praise and thanksgiving and confession, asking is at the heart of prayer. Asking is at the heart of what a child does when they have confidence in their relationship with their Heavenly Father. But it, 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 it requires us to take some time to ponder what it is we most need. What we most need right now. And for David, it's in this request, light up my eyes. Now, what is he asking for there? This phrase has a couple other appearances in the Old Testament. It's in 1 Samuel 14, 27, uh, when Jonathan and others in Saul's army are pursuing the Philistines, and they haven't eaten all day. And Jonathan comes upon some honey, a honeycomb that's fallen off of a limb onto the ground. And he, he takes some of the honey, and he's immediately revived by it, by its nourishment. And Jonathan says, my eyes were brightened when I ate from the honeycomb. His, his strength was restored. And we also find it in Deuteronomy 34, 7. At the very end of Moses' life, we we're told something about Moses. Now, the last 40 years of Moses' life were unrelenting hardship, unrelenting tests of his leadership, unrelenting criticism, unrelenting meeting again and again and again with the Lord in the tent, saying, what do I do now? And we read that at the end of 40 years of unrelenting hardship that ought to have ground him to the ground and left him an utterly spent man. In Deuteronomy 34, 7 we read, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. It's a picture of Moses having tapped into the resources of strength that God supplies all along the journey unto the very end so that however great was the hardship, at every key moment, the strength the Lord supplied was equal to or greater to meet it. David prays for a supply of spiritual strength. Paul prays this for the church in Ephesians 3. He says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with all power by his Holy Spirit in your inner being. Now let me ask you, as you are sitting here on January the 31st, uh, facing whatever you are facing in your life, and looking down the road and seeing things that seem scary and potentially overwhelming, what scares you most? Is it the size of the, is it, is it, does what scare you most, is it the thing itself that I might lose this or never regain this or have to, have to bear this weight? Is it the, the, the thing, the challenge, the obstacle itself that most scares you? Or is it this? The thought that you might have to face it or bear it 
with inadequate strength and end up a completely spent shell of yourself who was overcome by that and you're now ashamed before the Lord and before other people that you met a challenge and failed or you're, you've got nothing left to offer. What scares you more? Is it the external thing you might face or the threat of a lack of internal strength to meet it? I think for most of us, if we took a moment to really think about it, we'd say it's the internal. You know, if, if someone said you had to drive your car from, from Clemson to Alaska and you saw pictures and maps of the roads of just how rough it can get, especially up the western side of Canada, how many opportunities there are to get a flat tire, how some, sometimes it's hundreds of miles between any gas station, and you have your own driving history and your own car, you might, you might be overwhelmed with fear and dread at the thought. But if then they said, you're going to have to do this, but we're going to send behind you a truck that's going to have every spare part possible your car could ever need, multiple extra tires, plenty of fuel, there will be no challenge your car might face on that road that we won't have everything in the truck and the men, mechanics in it to fix it. And also in a couple places where the road is so perilous, we've got an expert driver who will switch seats with you to get you through that part. What's just happened in the way you see that road? Nothing about the road has changed. But your sense of being resourced for it has massively changed. That's what David is praying for when he says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes. That's what I most need is this assurance that you will be there. That I will end my days like Moses with his eyes undimmed and his vigor unabated. So say what you most feel. Say what you feel. Say who God is. Say what you most need. And then fourth, and I think this is a key part, say what you fear, what you most fear will happen. Say what you most fear will happen. Here's this threefold use of a word that we don't use that much anymore, the word lest. David says, he prays, lest I sleep the sleep of death, that is lest I die. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Now, lest is not, it's not a common word that we use anymore. I, I was curious how we use this in our vernacular language today. So I, I went to Twitter and I put lest in the search bar to see what kind of posts there are using lest. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was amusing. Um, it, made me, it made me smile. Outside of a few places where people were quoting the Bible, without question, the most common appearance of lest in Twitter posts was where people meant to write at least. <laughs> and they left out the A. But there was one Twitter user who got it right, and, and her post also was, was uh, amusing and hit home. It was from just over a year ago. Uh, no, she was reflecting back on a year ago. It was right at the beginning of this year, so in the last month or so. And she wrote, My resolution for 2020 was to spend more time together as a family, to feel less busy, and to pray more. This year I am going to skip resolutions lest everything I ask for be given again. <laughs> lest means for fear of. It lest contemplates and speaks out loud the worst case scenario. And did you know that your Heavenly Father who cares for you wants to verbalize, he wants you to verbalize your lest to him. So what is your lest this morning? Is it lest I never get married? lest we never have children. 
uh, lest my son or daughter never quite find their way in life and oh, the pain I would bear. Lest our church never find a pastor like the one we had. Or lest we go through a really difficult season of transition. Lest I fail and end in shame. Lest as I face this fork in the wrong decision, uh, this fork in the road, I make the wrong decision and regret it for the rest of my life. If I could put this in a little memorable phrase, if you want your soul to find rest, tell God you're lest. If you want your soul to find rest, tell God you're lest. Verbalize it in prayer. It opens up your heart to his presence and his fatherly care for you in a most powerful and intimate way. So to recap, say how you feel. Say who he is. Say what you most need. Say what you most fear will happen. And fifth and finally, say what God promises will happen. Verses 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. He speaks here of the Lord's steadfast love. You heard it described in uh, other parts of the service this morning as those were led and, and in the prayers. But in a simple definition, the Lord's steadfast love, a, a massive word in the Old Testament, it means his abundant pardon and provision for his people. His abundant pardon, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And his abundant protection, protection or provision. How precious is your steadfast love, O Lord. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. This, this Hebrew word for steadfast love is translated as such everywhere in the Psalms with one exception in Psalm 23, where the translators of the ESV and the NIV decided to stick with a, tra a traditional translation because it's so well known to us. And so Psalm 23, 6, as we know, it says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. But it's, it's the Hebrew word there would be surely goodness and steadfast love will follow me all the days of my life. And the word there for follow is a word that elsewhere in the Old Testament is used for hunt or chase down. It's kind of that picture of looking down the road and seeing God's steadfast love, not only in your rearview mirror, where I think if you've been walking with Christ for some number of years, you can look in your rearview mirror and see out the back window that at all those forks in the roads and challenges and scary type places, he came through for me. I might have gone through something I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy, but I did experience the love and provision and care of the Father of Jesus Christ in a remarkable way. I see it when I look in the rearview mirror. But what David says here in these last verses, he, goes, he says, I see it through the windshield. As I look down the road ahead, I don't know every twist and turn it will take. I don't know what every bump will feel like, but I know that on the far end of it, I will look in the rearview mirror then and see the Lord's steadfast love. I will see that goodness and steadfast love followed me, chased after me, were tailing me all the way. David is confident that his heart will rejoice in the way the Lord will save and deliver him. That on the back end of this, he will sing to the Lord and say, in what 
appeared to be scary on the front end and indeed was hard in this fallen world, I can on the back end say the Lord has dealt bountifully with me. This is, this is a man who has saturated his soul in the promises that God has made to him in his life and in the word of God even given before him. David had to write down the whole Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, before he could begin as king. And when you go to the New Testament, the, the, the man who seems most to, to parallel this in terms of his real metabolizing of the promises of God into the bones and sinew and muscle of his life, it would be Paul. And, and the New Testament book that seems to capture this confidence that David has in these Psalms would be Philippians. When you read Philippians, it's, it's filled with the language of emotion like we find in the Psalms, and it finds Paul in a real predicament. He's imprisoned by the Romans. And he's facing a, a future that could go one of three ways. And to summarize the book of Philippians, I'm borrowing here from Matt Chandler, and I don't know if he got it from someone else himself, but to summarize the book of Philippians, Paul from prison writes to the church back in Philippi, and he says, one of three things is going to happen to me. Either this is the end and I'm going to die. And that would be the best thing because to depart and be with Christ is far better. I would love to be in his presence at last. But if that doesn't happen, they're going to release me. And that would be great too because I will come and minister to you and bear continual fruit in your midst. Of course, the third option is they might keep me here for a long time. And that would be great too because right now God is converting the prison guard. So whatever happens to me, I don't know what it will be, and I don't know it in the details, but God in his love and in his purpose of the gospel in my life is going to use it for good. Of that much I am confident. Looking with the word of God into the future and, and seeing that your future will not, it will not be shaped by what you most dread. It will be shaped by the promises of God. And here's good news for you, dear, dear brother and sister in Christ. We have more promises than David did. Our Bible is even bigger. We see the things promised to David in, in greater clarity and greater light. We have this, this great and precious promise that if we're in Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That we will inherit a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That our faith will one day become sight. That we will see Satan and the world in opposition to God and our own sin ultimately defeated. And we will be glorified. That we will not be ashamed, but Christ will, will own us on that last day and say, this is my beloved son, my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit has been doing things in his or her life that bring glory to God for eternity. And we will be singing of these things. We will sing to the Lord and say, he has dealt bountifully with us. When you keep your Bible open, you see what God promises, and then that's how you finish a psalm like this. You finish by saying what God promises for your future. Now, some of you are hearing this, and you still have this, this objection that, that lingers for some time, which is prayer doesn't really change things, though. Prayer doesn't really change things. I'd ask you to consider two questions if you need to meet that objection to be able to receive the teaching of Psalm 13 into your life. The first is, how does God change the world? How does God change the world? And the answer is that he changes the world 
by changing people. He changes the world as he changes persons. He takes a person who's far from him, he brings them near. He takes a person who feels the weight of their sin and he relieves their burden and gives them peace. He takes a person who is cowardly, he gives them courage. He takes a person who's prone to quitting, he gives them resilience. He takes a person who's lost and he gives them a deep sense of calling. He takes a person who's alone and he embeds them in a community. God changes the world by changing people. What are you? And you say, I am a person. And the reality is that if you go into prayer one way, anxious, fretting, doubting, angry, fearful, and as you let the word of God guide and shape your prayer, take you by the hand from where you are, saying what you most feel, and then bringing you to a view of the future that is shaped and paved with the promises of God, you come out of that prayer another way. Faith strengthened. Repentance renewed. Reconnected with confidence. Ready to persevere another day. Ready to love an enemy. Ready to rest in God's forgiveness then you have changed. And if you have changed, then the world has changed at least a little. And your little circle of the world has probably changed quite a lot. And that is how God changes the world. He does it by changing people. And his means of changing people is through connecting with them in their prayer. But sometimes you don't know where to begin. You don't know how to start. You don't feel like praying. And for that place in this fallen world, God has given us the Psalms of Lament and a psalm like Psalm 13 that teaches you to begin by saying right out of the gate, say how you feel, and then to say who God is, and then to say what you most need, and then to say what you most fear, and then to end by saying what your God promises. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Might this be a season in your life as an individual as your church is taking you through a season of looking at the Psalms, might this be a season in your life, Clemson Presbyterian Church, as it often is in a, in a time of transition for many churches, where God's primary aim of all the things you're wondering, what does God want from you right now? His primary aim is to call your attention and to make prayer no longer your last resort, but your first instinct, where you can say, as a person, as a man, a woman, as a congregation, I am learning to carry everything to God in prayer. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, indeed you must care greatly for us to have your eye on the sparrow and your ear open to our hearts in such a personal way. Thank you that you continue to love us and pursue us, and I pray for each person listening to this that they have found that prayer is a struggle 
and maybe they've always been trying to pray in some way that felt formulaic or false or too big of a gear shift from where their heart really was, that you would show them your gracious provision of a Psalm 13 and other Psalms like it and where they can begin right where they are by bringing you there and leading them to a place where they see the future you have promised. Lord, I pray for Clemson Presbyterian Church that in this time, as they are uh, leading without a pastor and, and as it was announced, looking for an interim pastor and all of these things, uh, Lord, that you would in this time deepen the commitment to prayer and the joy in prayer this congregation has. That they would find not only fellowship with you that is deepened and sweetened through prayer, but also fellowship with one another as a pilgriming, praying people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.